Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone, and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So uh, I think that we're going to be learning quite a bit uh, today from our guest uh, about the dogmatic side of things, the pragmatic side of things. Very, very interesting background. But I guess without further ado, I'd like to welcome Joe De Simon to the show. Welcome today. Thank you. Great to be with you. So originally born and raised in the suburbs of Philadelphia. So how was life growing up there? Oh, it's terrific. Uh, you know, big, big sports fan, Eagles, Phillies, Sixers, uh, Flyers. Uh, it was great. Great childhood. Uh, great, very supportive parents. Uh, good, 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 good place to be. Got it. So how did you start to develop this love for, for chemistry? So I actually started in high school and, and uh, I, I had a knack for understanding it. I had a knack for teaching it. Uh, uh, with this, with some of the teachers there, I helped them understand the subject even in a public school setting. And then, uh, you know, like a lot of things, great teachers inspire you. And I had a wonderful, uh, chemistry and science teachers in high school and then really, really awesome faculty at the, at our sinus college. Very nice. Very nice. So you went there to your sinus college and uh, you graduated uh, And then right after that, you went into Virginia tech. So why not? Why did you go straight into Virginia Tech, uh, you know, instead of like maybe like doing a couple of years of working somewhere? Well, you know, what actually the surprising thing for me is, uh, you know, we didn't, our family uh, wasn't that well off. And I didn't appreciate that you could go to graduate school uh, and they would pay you. Uh, you know, like a lot of my friends wanted to go to medical school and we're going to incur a lot of debt. Uh, I fell in love with the subject and I realized that they were going to pay me to go to grad school. And I hadn't realized that. I think a lot of kids don't realize when they're going undergrad, you can get paid to go to grad school. And I found that out and I knew I could pursue what I'd love to do. And, uh, and Virginia Tech accepted me, rolled out the red carpet and had a blast. Very cool. Very cool. So, so why, why did you go into academia? Well, I had no intent to do that, actually. A lot of people when they go to grad school that want to be faculty members are pretty clear about that through their entire graduate career. I was uh, expecting to go to industry. In fact, I was expecting to go back to the Philadelphia area and work for DuPont or Roman Haas or Arco. And, and then on a whim, my faculty advisor mentioned that there was going to be a new 
program in polymer chemistry at one of the top 10 chemistry departments in the country at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And, and he thought I could, I could uh, do that. And, uh, and I went down there on the whim and fell in love with the campus and fell in love with the faculty. And all I had to do was teach organic chemistry and polymer chemistry. And he gave me half a million dollars to start a research program and um, thought it'd be a lot of fun. Got it. So how was the, um, what, what kind of students were you like really teaching? Because you, you were a professor for, for quite a bit. How many, how many years? 25 years. Wow. Wow. So, what, so that, taught, go ahead. taught a lot of kids organic chemistry, taught a lot of kids, uh, you know, organic is one of those subjects that, you know, uh, you take in your sophomore year in college. If you're, if you're going to nursing school or dental school or medical school or any pharmacy sciences and really enjoy teaching, uh, kids about uh, that subject, which is a really interesting topic. And, and it's not for everybody, but those that love it, love it and, uh, and help people, uh, learn it. And I think that, you know, being, being obviously, I mean, now you're more on the pragmatic side and, and, and you're leading your own venture and we're going to get into that in, in just a bit, but, but one of the critical things is, is listening. I mean, not only yourself, but being able to get your point across so that others, you know, may be able to capture that and 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 to move along, you know, in in the same uh, mode. So, what did you learn about about teaching and perhaps others, you know, listening to whatever you were saying? Well, it's fascinating you bring that up because you're spot on. You know, a lot of people have very different learning styles, and if you want to be a great teacher, I always felt that if somebody didn't understand what we we're doing, it's my fault. And, and to try to try to explain complicated topics, three or four or five different ways so that different learning styles could grasp that, I think, uh, is an important is it turned out to be a really important trait for me to be able to explain complicated things. And, and whether you're doing it in a classroom setting or talking to venture capitalists or investors or your own employees, recognizing a lot of different learning styles is something that's a uh, uh, it's, 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 it's helping me a lot now in everything that I do. So what were some of the qualities of your best students? Oh, uh, tenacity, uh, interest, uh, innovation, uh, work ethic, uh, being prepared. I had a lot of kids that, uh, you know, I would say suffer from the imposter syndrome and, and I find a lot of people, that are doing things well, be, well beyond they thought they were ever ever able to do. Get really well prepared for their for their moment in the in the in the spotlight. Uh, I, I've had kids that grew up in very different environments, and you know when you see somebody grew up with not much money, they think about problem solving differently than when somebody grew up with a lot of money. And and to get all those different types of perspectives, disciplines, ethnicities, gender coming together becomes a fabric for an amazing, innovative uh, program. And it's something we try to harness and work towards all the time. So during this time, I'm sure that you met a lot of people. So perhaps there is one story that shocked you the most, right? Like where you saw this, uh, this kid and, and, and where you were seeing her or, or him now. What, what was that story? Well, it has to be my very first PhD student, uh, Valerie uh, Shears Ashby. Valerie, um, African-American woman, uh, was an undergrad at UNC. She became my first PhD student. She actually graduated faster than anybody in my whole career in three and a half years, got her PhD. She went and did a postdoc in Germany as a NATO fellow. 
uh, came back and and she had multiple faculty offers. She was going to go in academia. She had offers from MIT and, and Georgia Tech and NC State, and she chose Iowa State. And I said, Valerie, I don't know what you're doing. I could have placed my first student at MIT, and she went to Iowa State. I told her I didn't know where Iowa was. And she said the faculty there reminded her of Chapel Hill, a very mature answer. <laughs> and uh, she rose through the ranks at, Cha- at Iowa State. She got tenure. My faculty colleagues at UNC attracted her back to UNC to join our faculty, and ultimately she became department chair, so she became my boss. So be kind to your students. You never know when they could be your boss. <laughs> and, uh, and then she became dean at uh, Carolina, and now she's dean of uh, uh, arts and sciences at Duke University. Amazing, amazing uh, academic leader and researcher. And what do you think triggers that determination? Tenacity, confidence that uh, helped her see her, her potential. And uh, just really, really proud of when people do that. That's amazing. And, and I understand as well, Joe, that you started getting involved with, with your students, with, with some of the ventures that, that they were developing. So, so how was this experience for you? Well, you know, I, I think uh, entrepreneurship is a, is a discipline and, and, uh, and instilling confidence that people can do this. You know, we had a, an entre- entrepreneurship minor in the College of Arts and Sciences at UNC is the ability to bolt the entrepreneurship minor onto over 30 different majors from not only science intensive majors, but humanities, performing arts. Uh, and, you know, and these, the tenets of entrepreneurship, uh, being able to build a business, sustainable pro- nonprofit, for-profit, uh, bringing people together, understanding finance, understanding the pitch, all those things uh, were something we did. And, and in my own research group, I've always been a firm believer in what I would call translational research, things that can have an impact on society to improve, you know, the people's lot in life and whether the health and well-being or the economy. And we always try to do very uh, utilitarian research that would have an impact on uh, making a difference. So I guess uh, you're probably one of the uh, most equipped individuals to answer this question. But do you think that entrepreneurs are born or is this something that you learn? I, you know, I, I, I think it's a mix. I mean, I think there's a lot of people that are born with the skills that make a lot of mistakes. And so I think there's a lot of learning that they can have in a more formal way. And then I think there's a lot of people that can contribute to the entrepreneurial journey um, and understanding their role in that. Um, they might not be born with those or quite have the, the leadership uh, potential, but they can absolutely uh, participate in the journey. Uh, to make, you know, to bring new companies and new concepts to, to life. Got it. It's a bit of a blend. Yeah, no, I hear you. Absolutely. So, so what were some of these exciting companies that, that you were involved with? Well, um, one of the most fun was um, partnering with an interventional cardiologist at Duke University and developing a, a coronary stent that was polymeric instead of based on metals that would go away after 18 months. And the idea that, uh, you know, after balloon angioplasty, you needed the mechanical support in a blood vessel for a period of time, but you didn't need it forever. So why have a permanent prosthetic to a temporary healing issue? And that was a sort of the, the, the perspective we had. And we developed a, a stent uh, that after it's implanted, it, it gets absorbed after 18 months. And actually the, the healing process starts and the blood vessels can uh, return to be better than 
or to be as good as they were. And uh, so we launched that company and on financing, it was acquired by Guidant and then it ultimately became part of Abbott. And we've now had over a couple hundred thousand people with those stents implanted in them. So that, what an amazing ride that was. Wow. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and this is a, what was the name of this business? It was called BioStent. It became Bioabsorbable Vascular Solutions at, at Abbott. Got it. And then there is a, another company that just recently went public that you were also part of. So, so tell us about this story. Yeah. So one of my PhD students, uh, Jason Rowland, uh, developed a technology for basically using some of the tools of the computer industry uh, to make precision particles that had controlled size and shape, that had the uniformity of an integrated circuit, but were was a particle. And you know, most particles, if you look at them under an electron microscope, are are very globular or, or granular, and they're you know, there's no one, no two particles of the same size and shape. And we developed a precision technique to mold particles so they all have the same size, all the size size shape. But also the shape would impart function that you couldn't get out of granular uh, objects. And so <clears throat> this became a really terrific way to deliver uh, medicines to the airway. Uh, and you could get really better deposition in, into, the, into the lungs for treating diseases like COPD and pulmonary hypertension. Those same particles, much smaller became really terrific for IV delivery of, a thermo, uh, of chemotherapeutics for local drug delivery in oncology and so uh, and also some vaccines for infectious diseases and cancer vaccines. So it became a platform for delivering medicines in a lot of different forms throughout the body. Got it. Got it. And this company went, went public? Yeah, the company's called Liquidia Technologies and went public uh, last fall, and they're located in Research Triangle Park, North Carolina. So we were talking about uh, skill sets before and, and different patterns, um, more in people. But if we're talking about like more of a group of people and perhaps even a company, I mean, you, you've, seen, you've seen many, many things over these years as a professor, you know, many, many things, many different scenarios of your students going on and going out and, and building great things. So what would you say are like the three critical ingredients for a company to be widely successful? Well, you know, um, certainly technology that's differentiated and is patent protected is a, is a, is a ticket to the game. And uh, that's really important. I, I think it's different, highly differentiated technology would be a second one that was impactful. And to me, that's often the signature of that is like a paper in science or nature or proceedings in National Academy of Sciences. And then thirdly would be the team and uh, having a, the, you know, a great team of people that, uh, that are committed, that are passionate, that are talented. And I've seen a lot of um, you know, B and C level technologies with an A team uh, win really, really, really well. And I've seen A technology with a B or C team go nowhere. And I think having, you really need, you need both. And, uh, and to me, that's the, those are the secret ingredients. So let's talk about your, your own venture, uh, Carbon. So, so you were in academia for over 20 years and, and obviously, you know, like that's a very stable, very secure path. Why did you, how did you, first and foremost, how did you incubate the idea? And then why did you decide to complicate your life a little bit with the uncertainty? Yeah, and I was just asking myself that this weekend. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, we cultivated the... So, look, this, I'm a polymer guy. This was in a sweet spot of polymers. 
you know, when you make, when you, anything you buy polymeric, uh, parts for, you know, your all, all the parts in your car or in a medical device or sporting goods, all those parts are molded or casted. And in other words, it was a molten polymer poured into a cavity, the polymer cooled, part solidified, you open a cavity and pull the part out. That general approach was established 7,000 years ago, molding and casting. And it, it feels very archaic. We figured out how to make polymeric parts with light without using molds. And all of a sudden now, you've got designs that are unmoldable. You have the ability of, of getting to those amazing designs instantly instead of waiting for months to get your hands on a mold. Uh, and it just, it just accelerates product teams and the ability to do things. And so we saw this emerging and thought, man, you know, given the, how much it's in my wheelhouse, how differentiated it was going to be for my field, uh, having been very comfortable, as you say, in an academic institution, uh, thought I was, you know, my wife and I were just turning 50 and, and going into the second half and was very comfortable thought I was ready for a new challenge and, and always thought Silicon Valley would be an amazing place to, uh, uh, to, to help drive a company forward. And we made the leap. So, so talk to us about, you know, what was the process of making the leap? Like from, okay, I got this idea to, all right, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna make this happen. We're moving and we're starting out. Well, actually to, to paint it a little bit more clearly, um, <clears throat> I was hesitant in the beginning and the investors, at, I was, I was going to hire a CEO like I did for my other companies. And, uh, and, I, and I told the investors I was going to do a sabbatical with my company this time. And, and they said, look, if you're going to do all that, why don't you lead the company? And I said, look, uh, uh, Mr. Investor, Jim Getz, I said, you know, I've read all the stories about how, how faculty screw up their companies. And uh, so therefore, you know, why don't I do it for a year? give you a really graceful way to get rid of me and me a graceful way to back out. And uh, that was six years ago. So uh, there was a lot of uh, trepidation about doing that. Um, but, you know, I taught entrepreneurship, but I was never on the field with one of my companies and it was polymers and that's my wheelhouse. So thought I would give it a shot and, and, uh, and made that jump. But look, there's a lot of similarities between academia and entrepreneurship in that you're, you're basically bringing people along, which is a lot about teaching. Uh, you're painting a vision for the future, uh, how the world can be different. You know, the fundamental differences are the fact that, you know, in academia, there's very little, at the end of the day, real uh, accountability uh, and responsibility. Uh, you know, when you're leading a company, you know, when I walk into the parking lot, you know, all I see are car payments and mortgage payments and people left great companies to come work for our company. And, you know, that if that doesn't put a pit in your stomach, I don't know what will. And you don't have that level of responsibility in academia. And it's one that, you know, it's it, it's a lot of pressure on you to to make sure that, uh, you know, everything you're doing every day, every moment is uh, on behalf of the whole team here. Of course. And and I understand that there is also some family members in the founding team. So so tell us about this. Yeah, my uh, my son is our chief customer officer. Uh, he's an entrepreneur. He also went to a sinus college. Uh, he had started a, um, a e-commerce company. It was acquired and, and I was just getting this one started and, 
you know, he approached me about joining the team and, and, uh, I thought that would be amazing. And, and now he's, you know, he's leading, uh, customer acquisition. You know, I think the investors, you know, hired me to get to him. Uh, they, they, he's a, he's a scout at Sequoia and he's doing a, he's doing a terrific job. So, uh, yeah, we're all in. My daughter's here. She's a, uh, entry-level position on the marketing team and she's doing a great job. And, but now that brings my wife in much more clearly. So the weekends and evenings are, it's, you know, it feels like it's a hundred percent carbon round the clock. You gotta be careful about that. <laughs> got it. Got it. And, and what are the dynamics of working with your children, Joe? Well, you know, it's, um, you know, it, it's, you know, for sure, you're going to hear what you, what they believe and feel, and it's, it's not couched. Uh, it's direct. And I, you know, I appreciate that. And, you know, we just had a board meeting and, you know, our, one of our lead investors and, and, uh, and Phil were, you know, going back and forth about, you know, the details of a particular issue. And yeah, I, I think there's a, there's a chutzpah, uh, level, uh association, uh, of being able to be really clear. And when you can get to those, that kind of granular real points without being couched, you know, a lot of amazing stuff gets done and, yeah. uh, it's really valuable in that context. Got it. I mean, I remember reading the book, The Founder's Dilemma, and on yeah. this book, it, it talks about the dynamics uh, between co-founders and founding teams and how when sometimes when, when you bring family members into the equation, uh, it is really effective when you can tell it the way it is, just like you would do with anyone else. But in many instances, uh, you may want to take the approach or you take the approach of not wanting to really hurt people's feelings. So you're not really, so you're kind of like putting a wall so that you're not really being transparent with how you would, you know, want to say things or, or how things, you know, you think that they should be differently. So, you know, just wondering your, your, your take on that. Yeah, I know. I think it's spot on. I also think there's a huge cultural element, you know, and, you know, when, uh, and we've got multiple leaders here where they're, that have family members actually in the company, including children that are doing interns that are taking jobs and, and, uh, you know, in this world of, uh, you know, having a no asshole policy and, and, um, and having a culture of, of kindness and uh and work ethic all melded together and uh you know and all the you know the you know, sexual harassment issues that you hear about in so many companies you know having a family-like environment is a cultural element that i think is unfortunately distinguished uh and it's an important part of who we are and it's a reinforcing of our values and that, that's another important dimension that i think it brings as well of course, of course. So tell us about the early days of carbon. Well, the early days of carbon is, you know, we we had we figured some stuff out and uh, we knew we had a breakthrough approach in 3D printing. There was actually a battle uh, amongst the founders uh, about, you know, what we wanted to do as a business then. And, uh, you know, this was in a heyday of the maker movement and and desktop 3D printing. And there was a lot of people talking about that. Uh, and, you know, 3D printing as a as a industry sector is a fairly modest industry. It's an eight billion dollar uh, industry today. It's half polymers, half metals. That includes the printers, the resins, the materials, the software and even the parts made. But, you know, manufacturing and uh, manufacturing polymers is a three hundred billion dollar marketplace. Yeah. And it's a very different market. And nobody was doing that. 
And so there was a, a bat, you know, a real battle uh, discussion about where we were going to go as a business and felt that we were going to do the harder thing, the road that no, there was no road to doing digital printing at scale and manufacturing. And we committed to doing that. And we committed to doing that by uh, owning the intersection of hardware, software, and material science and not be gated by anybody else uh, that we technologically control our destiny and uh, would go after the whole thing. Got it. So then what ended up being the, uh, the business model that you guys, you know, set your eye on? Well, so then that, that so, uh, so the technology came through and we figured out how to do this, but probably one of the most innovative things is the business model. You have an amazing board of directors, including uh, Ellen Coleman, who was the chairman CEO of DuPont's, my lead director, Alan Mullally, who was the CEO of Ford Motor Company, and before that, he was CEO of Boeing Commercial Aircraft Division, and Jim Getz, you know, from Sequoia, uh, and a few others. But we decided to go with a subscription model. This is the very first piece of manufacturing hardware that's ever gone out via subscription model. And why do we do that? We did that because... We're staring at, and we know in our heart of hearts, we're staring at three decades of innovation. And how do you get people, how do you get customers to come into an area that you yourself know you're constantly innovating and therefore obsoleting what it is you're doing? And a subscription model becomes, I think, the entrepreneurial solution to a, a whole, uh, in, in the physical, when you're doing physical products, uh, to allow you to be future-proof from obsolescence. Yeah. It becomes the trick to do that. It becomes the, the key factor to allow a, a, a new wave of innovation without fear of obsolescence. And so, and but no one ever had a piece of manufacturing hardware ever go out via subscription model. Uh, so we needed to break grounds on that. It's a connected product. We do over-the-air software upgrades every six to eight weeks. Uh, it's got all the service and support rolled into that and actually goes out via three-year contracts. That was also game-changing. No one thought we could get three-year contracts, and now contracts are actually trending towards five and seven years. So it's an install base that's growing. We have essentially zero churn, uh, and every printer, every customer, it's actually turned out to be a land and expand where they turn from one printer and they figure stuff out, and they're adding multiple printers with time. That's pretty amazing. That's pretty amazing. And uh, I guess the, um, you know, one thing you were talking about, uh, Jim Goetz, uh, and obviously he is one of the top uh, investors when it comes to, to startups, you know, and, and he's been in the uh, Midas list and all of this stuff like multiple times. So how, how, how did you guys meet? Uh, so, you know, actually back to my, my son had, uh, well, when I was teaching at the University of North Carolina, um, I was close, you know, the, I had a number of the, uh, uh, women's soccer team, uh, members taking my class in entrepreneurship and one of them, uh, and I always would bring outside speakers into my class. And one of them's father was, uh, Brent Jones, um, uh, Super Bowl champion tight end with the 49ers who moved into venture capital. And I got him to teach in my entrepreneurship class. And then my son ended up interning with him at Northgate capital out here in Silicon Valley. And, and Brent's really close to Jim. And when we went to get in front of venture capitalists in Silicon Valley, it was only one person we wanted to talk to uh, and see if we could get him on board. And that was Jim. And and we set up a meeting with Jim at Sequoia. And what was really interesting, unbeknownst to us, for the previous three years, Jim had been looking at investing in 3D printing and 
and basically wrote off the whole sector. There was no technological innovations that would uh, would rise above the bar in his mind, and he passed on the whole sector, but he entertained uh, maybe one last visit and saw our printer. We brought our printer out with us, and he was hooked because uh, he was he was you know he'd already done all his homework for the last three years, and we got him on board, and that's how it 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 happened. That's amazing. Because how much uh, how much capital have you guys raised to date? So we've raised six hundred and eighty million dollars uh, since we launched. Wow, that's a uh, that's a lot of zeros. So uh, so walk us through the um, through the different financing uh, cycles and and what kind of expectations you were encountering. What was that experience? Well, you know, in the beginning, uh, when you launch a company, you're always focused on what are the biggest risks uh, to the technology and the team and. And you have to go after those first. And so, you know, we pitched, uh, you know, Jim got us out of the gates on our Series A funding along with some North Carolina uh, investors. Uh, and um, and we, we quickly got you know, our legs underneath us and, and built out uh, some more prototypes. And, uh, and then we, stay, we were in stealth mode at that point. And uh, <clears throat> we wanted to expand and um, we got the company set up in California and then went out into the Series B and we talked to three groups and we actually brought in Silver Lake, uh, really unusual to bring a large private equity technology firm into an early stage company. But we knew a lot of their LPs were, were going to be our customers and they saw it. Uh, and so they came in on board. And so our Series A and B were all done under stealth mode. Uh, Series B had yet another set of technological hurdles that we needed to get through to get to our first product and including having materials that would have uh, the properties to be a finished good coming out of a 3d a light-based 3d printer uh, would also allow us to build a connected product we're able to hide, hire different people including our founding vice president of engineering craig carlson who was a founding vp of engineering at tesla uh, everything about the Tesla cars, you know, is, uh, is all electrified and completely and remotely controllable software. Uh, and we built out our printer with the same DNA as a Tesla car, connected product, being able to do over there software upgrades. We built that uh, uh, first product out. And then we came out of stealth in a, in a very, uh, what I would call an entrepreneurial hat trick, uh, in that we, the mo I, wa I walked onto the stages of TED to unveil our technology. And at the same moment I walked on the stages of TED, our paper, the embargo on our paper and science was lifted that very moment and our website went live. So those three things happened within the same uh, moment. And, um, and we unveiled our technology. It happened to be Larry Page and Sergey Brin were in the audience at uh, TED. And, uh, and that launched our Series C financing led by Google Ventures. Wow. Uh, and that was used to bring our very first product uh, to market. And uh, once we were able to do that, uh, we got some good traction. And then we uh, we brought other investors in, including Adidas and GE and BMW and JSR, a Japanese uh, chemical uh, microelectronics uh, uh, firm. Um, and then uh, <clears throat> once we got uh, traction and we, we knew we could start doing manufacturing with Adidas, uh, we did a Series D uh, that uh, was actually a syndicate of some great investors, including Fidelity and Bailey Gifford, uh, and as well as some of the current investors. And then we just did our Series E, uh, led by Bailey Gifford uh, and uh, and Madrone Capital, which is the Walmart uh, uh, family. Greg Penner, chairman of uh, Walmart, 
Walmart, uh, and Tamasek, the sovereign funds out of um, uh, Singapore, uh, as well as uh, our current investors. Got it. Really, really interesting. Really, really exciting as well, Joe. So, so I guess the um, what what's here like the the big difference between let's say because we've been talking from like Sequoia all the way to Temasek or or even Google. So, what is the difference for especially for the folks that are listening? The the main difference between let's say a strategic investor versus a, a more like a Sequoia style VC style type of investor. Yeah, I mean, so you know, one is 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 uh, the genesis of a company and the and the entrepreneurial tenets. Uh, the you know the big decisions we made about having a subscription model, being able to sell resins, the decisions we made on the technology itself, the markets we go after, really really important entrepreneurial decisions. Uh, and now it's it's outlining the metrics for us to be a a great um, a publicly traded company. You know what are those metrics um, that uh, allow us to measure and manage our business uh, so that we can be predictable. Uh, and, you know, in, in this new world of, uh, you know, for us, it's uh, uh, the subscription model metrics, including, you know, ARR and, and uh, what markets we're going after. What are the size of those markets? What is our, uh, uh, what is, uh, what is our follow on plans? What, you know, issues about churn issues about, uh, RPO, you know, remaining performance obligation and deferred revenue on these contracts, and and to really start honing uh, the sequential quarter over quarter uh, evolution of the company as we as we in, our install base grows and grows, and so it's this really interesting uh, progression. And you know, I'm a very competitive person by nature, and so being able to see the things that matter to people uh, in, in the as as you begin supporting companies, uh, tech companies in particular, and what are the growth scenarios, gross margins, and like, and and we're you know watching those metrics evolve in front of us, and and seeing how we compare to comps in the software world and the subscription world. These are all the things that you know we didn't do any of that in the beginning that we're really honed on right now. Got it. And as we were talking about investors, I'm. I'm all, my, my understanding as well is that you have something like 200 patents or, or, or something like this. So how important would you say intellectual property and, and especially having all these patents in place has been for you guys to, to get that, that kind of like, a, um, I would say, interest, let's say, from, from investors? You know, it's interesting. There was actually, uh, there's probably two camps. You know, there's one camp where thought patents were really important. There was another camp. You know, and maybe it's more of a software camp that was more about just going fast was critical, and they were you know didn't want to see a lot of equity capital spent on on IP. You know, so as you know, it's as a leader of a company, you get all different kinds of board perspectives, and you got to make a decision, and and you know the board gets behind it, and and we decided we needed to be IP uh, uh, savvy, and you know we have over over. A, 300 active applications. We've got uh, about 60 issued uh, patents now. Uh, they come in a lot of different flavors between the hardware and the software and the materials and, and how we do what we do. And, you know, I, I think it's really, really important uh, in order mostly to give our the people that are our customers coming on board with us uh, a, clean, a clean marketplace to participate in and, and this new approach for, the, for making what they want to make. 
And so we've been uh, pretty expansive and, and being in stealth mode for two years allowed us to be in front of this in ways that caught a lot of people off guard, uh, including the chemical industry. And it's, you know, it's really important for us to, uh, you know, use our IP to have, uh, uh, multiple suppliers and making sure that we're driving the cost per part down by having competition on the chemical supply chain uh, into our network. And those are the kinds of things that we, you know, we use the IP for. Got it. Got it. And, and how big is the company today, Joe? We're, uh, we're about 500 people, depending on how you count. And, um, and we're, we're located in uh, Redwood City, but we have offices in Atlanta and in Germany and in China. Wow. So, um, you know, pointing back to to what you were referring, that the intention at the beginning was to get to get a CEO and, and kind of like for you to take a, a backseat. You know, I can I can't even imagine the the transformational journey that this has been for you. So um, so I guess from a leadership perspective, you had you have uh, you needed as well to grow, you know, at the same pace as the as the business. So, so I guess what did you learn in the process of, of going through that? Well, you know, I think what's key is you realize that every moment counts and, um, and every issue matters. And, um, you know, when you think about things that way and, and, you know, I don't know that a hired gun would feel that way as intensely as you do as a founder CEO. And, and, you know, that saved you lots of time when you, when you, when you operate in that mode that, you, know, you don't let things go sideways because you're, you know, you're, you're guiding at every moment on every issue. And I, I think it's that level of tenacity that founder CEOs, I think are distinguished in that regard. Um, and I, and I think that's been an important thing. I think setting the right cultural elements in a company, um, is really, really important. And founders are uniquely positioned to, uh, to do that. Look, you know, I hired everyone in the building. Uh, I, you know, I've got a huge commitment to them, and uh, and you know, it's it's nice to see the esprit de corps that we have when everyone sees the vision of where we're going, and the fact that you know that we've got the commitments to make it happen. So, I, you know, I've grown personally a lot, but I also realize this is hard work. Uh, it's a lot, and um, uh, you know, it's it's. Uh, you know, when you're doing important things, it, it's uh, it's not for the faint of heart. Yeah, no, I, I hear you completely. And and during this journey, Joe, what would you say was, you know, if you're willing to share, I'm sure that the listeners, you know, are going to really be able to learn a lot from it. What would you say was probably the most challenging moment for you? And, you know, maybe like a moment that was kind of like a breakdown that perhaps led to a really major breakthrough for the business. You know, I, I think without being... Uh, uh, specific um i got a list of those actually uh i literally keep a list um you know i i i want to write a book when it's done more about entrepreneurship 101 or entrepreneurship and owner's manual i mean i think there's a lot of stuff that uh founders ceos deal with that uh, you don't often hear too much about and it comes in a lot of different flavors but you know, I would say um, bringing everybody along uh, on this journey, making the hard decisions um, is, is the most important thing. The people side of this, it's not the tech, it's not the money, 
that you are able to raise. It's it's getting alignment uh, on your team and marshalling everybody. And when you have the kinds of employees we have that are that are very passionate, highly engaged, and a culture where you bring that to the fore, um, you make better decisions. But it's not as easy as I think it would be if you were, you know, command and control and and my way or the highway. And we've, you know, bringing everyone along is a lot of work. Uh, and uh, and and those have been those have been critical and being disciplined and and stay and stay disciplined. Uh, on where you're going is is also really important. Believe in your business model. Believe in the marketplace. Making the right choices about which markets to go after. Lot of lot of dispute uh, about where we're going to play and how we're going to win. And uh, you know, going after running shoes uh, with Adidas is you know it's the ultimate. Well, it's a consumer product. You know, very different uh, profile than a medical device. But, you know, the trade-offs on early revenue, the trade-off boy that were like, holy smokes, if you can make running shoes economically with light, then the world would be your oyster. And, and having the right partner, and we've talked to a lot of folks in that marketplace, and we ha- we, we, we are so fortunate to have landed Adidas uh, in a company that believes with, with us and where we're going. You know, we made some great decisions that uh, were on the cusp of not being the right decisions, and it's all about all about people and the right partners that you bring onto the team, mostly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and just out of curiosity, how do you seek that level of alignment um, with, for example, like at a board level when you're thinking about direction and and who to work with or who not to work with or what direction to take? Like, what? How do you seek that alignment? How do you how do you seek that alignment? Or well, look, it's, yeah, because I guess I guess at a board level, you know, everyone has different opinions on the strategy. So how do you really like uh, rally everyone towards you know the same the same I would say road or path? Yeah, well, look, you know, boards are all about governance; they're not about management. And I think, and it's really great having two former operating company CEOs on our board who understand that viscerally. Uh, Ellen Coleman and Alan Mullally, in combination with venture capitalists, uh, in, in combination with you know and uh, uh, strategic investors, and so you know I think every we've got a great board and they understand their role. And uh, at the end of the day, they're 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 counting on me to make uh, to listen, to to hear their views, and to make decisions and communicate those decisions and create clarity. And uh, you know, not everyone. You know, with a group like that, you're not going to get everyone aligned, uh, but they understand the decisions that you go after, and uh, and you know, and sometimes they're good decisions, and hopefully more more so than others. Yeah, absolutely. So, so Joe, uh, now you know, there's there's one question that I typically ask the um, the guests that we have on the show, and that is knowing what you know now. I mean. You now have been, you know, at it for for quite some time. I mean, incredible, incredible experience uh, as an operator. Now, you know, also what you saw when you were a professor. So, if you had the opportunity to have a conversation with your younger self, with that younger Joe, what would you tell him, uh, or what would be that one piece of business advice that you would give, and why? You know, I think generally that um, uh, life is short. 
you know, make every moment uh, count. Um, you know, this is, you know, when you're going at, the, you're going to go at things really, really hard, make sure that you're enjoying the moment, smelling the roses uh, as they happen. Um, you know, I, you know, I think there's an opportunity to, um, yeah, I wish I had, a, I, I spent more time building my network, my personal network. I tell a lot of people now, you know, think more about that, cultivating that it, you know, I've done, I've done well in that regard, but, you know, I think it, I see a lot of people are very purposeful about it and they've done extremely well. Uh, I think those are important things. And, and I would say, keep, you know, believe in yourself and what you're doing, enjoy what you're doing and the chips will fall where they may. Um, you know, I think a lot of people, uh, you know, want to be an entrepreneur and they don't know what exactly what they want to work on. And, you know, I don't think that's well aligned. And, you know, I've always been fortunate that the stuff I was interested in mattered, but I was mostly doing it because I was interested in it. And I'm glad it mattered. And I'm glad I was able to get resources to make it happen. Absolutely, Joe. And entrepreneurship is not a job title, it's a lifestyle. So uh, I completely see your your perspective. So Joe, for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Well, you know, our Carbon website, uh, carbon3d.com, is, uh, is a great resource for people to see what we're doing. Uh, you know, I'm active on Twitter and LinkedIn. Uh, those become great ways. And, uh, you know, those that are interested in the future of manufacturing uh, digitally, uh, this, this, this is happening. And if you want to advance products faster than you've ever done before, if you want to replace inventory uh, and you want to join a new way of making things, and if you're a software person, you want to do something more than have people click on ads uh come come talk to us we're making a difference in in how you how the world makes things i love it i love it so joe thank you so much for being on the deal maker show it has been a real pleasure to have you oh it's uh it's our honor and thank you for your interest in what we do if you like the show make sure that you hit that subscribe button if you could leave a review as well that would be fantastic and if you got any value either from this episode or from the show itself Share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to AlejandroCremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.